Welcome to Founders and Friends Podcast with Scott Orner, Cruise Consulting. And before we get to an awesome podcast with Mike Whitmire of Flowcast, quick shout out to Rippling. Rippling is our favorite payroll system, favorite benefit system, and they make a really awesome IT integration that allows you to spin up new users when you hire them, provision all their web service accounts, and get them up and running really quickly. I, I, we did the math and it saves us three hours. Uh, or say, it saves the client three hours per employee new hire. So it's a really big helper, saves a ton of time. I think that's like 400 bucks in IT services time. So love Rippling. It's amazing. Check them out, rippling.com. And now I'd like to introduce Mike Whitmire of Flowcast. Welcome, Mike. Thanks, Scott. I appreciate uh, you having me on today. Yeah, Flowcast is a really cool software company for the accounting space. So we can really nerd out here. Uh, before before we talk product, maybe Mike, can you tell everyone just how you had the idea to start Flowcast? It's a pretty interesting story. Yeah, so uh, cool is definitely very relative in this uh, in this environment. I would say for for us, it'll be cool. For ninety eight percent of the population, it's super boring. But yeah, yeah, the way I found uh, the way I got into accounting software is I, I am actually an accountant by trade, so majored in this stuff. I uh, went went to work at Ernst Young, Los Angeles, so. Got my CPA there, was there for about three and a half years, and that was my exposure to the month-end close was from the audit side of the table, and I was you know, constantly getting revised trial balances and new reconciliations and was just like, man, what's going on? Why is this so hard? And then I moved to, uh, I, left, I left public audit and went over to industry, and I joined a software company in LA by the name of Cornerstone On Demand, um, software as a service company. I was the fifth person in accounting, so... Got a little startup experience there and joined about a year before the IPO. We ended up scaling really, really aggressively over the three and a half years that I was there. By the time I left, we had about 50 people in accounting. So Wow. Are you kidding me? No. So so in my time, saw it grow from five to 50 and close. You know, As you're scaling like that, you're going public. You have more intense deadlines all of a sudden. Those start to get shorter as you scale up. You're just doing a lot more than you didn't used to do. And so we had, we had a lot of problems with it. And it was, you know, collaboration, like you got 50 people working in silos, you need to be on the same page, but it's it's really difficult because there isn't good project management software for accountants. And then the tie-out and reconciliation process was absolutely brutal for us. So with that, I just, you know, one day had that like classic entrepreneur moment of, God, there's got to be a better way to do this. Uh, looked around and didn't wasn't able to find anything that helped with these pain points. And so I decided to uh, leave uh, leave Cornerstone and found Flowcast, and that was at the end of 2012. So fast forward to 2020 here. Uh, for those listening to this in the future, we are currently at home with a pandemic going on around us with coronavirus. And uh, yeah, Flowcast has about 850 clients today. We we focus on what we define as the the mid market. I think we're going to chat about market segmentation a little bit, but we define it as the mid market. Um, and yeah, 850 customers. We have about 150 employees. We've raised 93 million in venture capital. Um, so it's been a really fun and challenging and stressful eight years here. Yeah, eight years. Wow. Isn't it amazing? Like it takes, it's like the classic overnight success that took eight years, you know? Yeah. And what's nuts, I realize uh, I now have been working on Flowcast longer than my prior two jobs combined. That was a weird, that was just kind of a weird <laughs> moment. It's like, okay, over half of my career has now been spent doing okay yeah. well so. 
the company's got serious traction. We see it all over the place, and I've looked at it a bunch of times, and it's a it's a really cool product. So maybe maybe talk about like some of the they talked about like trial balances, reconcile reconciling that. You also talked about the project management aspect of the tool. Yeah. Maybe you could just kind of give a highlight for all the accounts out there who are thinking about this. Yeah. So the the challenge around the close, like when I got to Cornerstone and we had five people, it was um, it was easy enough. We were all in the same room. We could look at each other and say, where are you at with this? Or have you reviewed this reconciliation? Have you done the revenue for this contract? Whatever. But then as you as you start to scale, you get more people, you really you start to assign out the balance sheet and all the different processes. And what that means is people start working in silos, but how accounting is a bit unique from other functions is that something that someone's doing over here is going to impact me potentially. So for example, I was the deferred revenue guy and billing adjustments would impact me. And so I was very dependent on understanding what my billing team was doing and were contracts being renegotiated, all that stuff. So I was really dependent on things that were occurring in other balance sheet accounts to do my work properly. And yeah. as we scaled and all of a sudden there were five people in deferred revenue, there were six people doing AR collections, you know, all that kind of stuff. It was just like, wow, this became really challenging, both from a just collaborating and doing processes and workflow perspective, but also like I would tie out my trial balance. I'd have my deferred revenue accounts done, ready to go, hand them to the auditors. And then the auditors are like, this doesn't agree to the trial balance. I'm like, what the hell? So I go in and, you know, in accounting, we all like to think we lock our ERP and we're all good about it, but that's just not how it really works in the real world. And so, and like numbers can change and they might book something that's a billing adjustment that impacts deferred revenue. It's a top side entry. I didn't know about it. All of a sudden the auditors are pissed. We're burning audit fees. And it was all because we were, our reconciliations were not connected to our ERP. At the end of the day, that's what causes that problem. So when I was thinking about this, I'm like, all right, for the most part, accountants operate, they work in a very similar fashion. We all kind of get organized the same way. We like to break things out by entity. Then you think about it by month and then you think about it by process and you really kind of like to get organized that way. And then you have all the workflow that goes along with that. Then you have specific little nuances for accounting, like, hey, maybe I need to prepare a reviewer. Maybe I need to prepare with three reviewers because this is a high risk item. Uh, do I need strict sign off on this? Do I need loose sign off mode if I'm a startup? There are just all these little like nuances that I think really aren't appreciated with an accounting checklist. So that was what we did is we were like, okay, everyone gets organized this way anyway. We need a checklist that handles all the nuances, which are things that would be needed from a two person shop all the way up to a 200 person public company. And then we need to connect reconciliations to the ERP directly to make sure we don't run into these pain points that I had experienced when doing this stuff. Uh, so, you know, I, I got exposure to maybe 12 different companies while I was doing audit and it was all pretty consistent. And then when I got to Cornerstone and it was still consistent, I was like, all right, this is how the world operates. So we just built it really to like work how accounts are already working today, just in their imagination, just putting it in a piece of software and allowing them to actually use it. Yeah. But that's the beauty of it is that the that piece of software actually cements the processes. And so it, I always kind of say with, with other tools too, like bill.com or Spensify or whatever, so it gives you the premium best processes. Like if you're doing something that doesn't that flowcast doesn't support, then you're probably doing it wrong and you should reevaluate that. You know, not that you guys are the end all be all, but like it's set up for a certain reason yeah. on purpose, you know, and that's in, in those points, like you're talking about, and for people who are not accountants listening to this, like there's nothing more frustrating than, than for example, you're tying out all your deferred revenue. That was probably like a week's worth of work. 
And then all of a sudden the person doing billing refunded a bunch of stuff and all the deferred uh, revenue needs to be redone. You know, like that's horrible. That's like, that means you're doing your job twice and that's super inefficient. So that's, that's why I like you guys is you guys create these like really excellent processes that all accounts can follow. And then there's, you just reduce the noise and you reduce the double work. Yeah, for like, absolutely. And not only is it double work internally, but when you hand it to the auditors, it becomes double work and they are not cheap resources and no one wants to pay a hefty audit bill. So yeah, that, that side of it is super uh, impactful as well. Yeah. One of the things I loved is like how you could in Flowcast, you could upload, you know, an Excel, Excel sheet or things like that. And it would actually tie out to certain cells in Excel. Can you maybe talk about that a little bit and yeah, how, how that takes some time? That, so like that is, I think, exhibit A of working the way accountants already work in both audit and accounting. What we would do is, you know, in audit, they're called work papers and accounting, they're called reconciliations. At the end of the day, it's basically the same thing. And we would go through this exercise where in the work paper or in the reconciliation, you find the ending balance, you type in TB or GL next to it. And that is signifying that I, Mike Whitmire, have looked at this number here. I've also looked inside of NetSuite or whatever my ERP is, and they are the same. The problem is once you do that, it can change and things are things are now static. And so we're sitting there, we're like, all right, the, the pain point around tieouts and reconciliations is that it's not linked to the ERP. What is the easiest way we can link it to the ERP? And that's where the whole hashtag comes from. So we were kind of like fiddling around and I'm sitting there like, eh, maybe instead of GL or TB, we can just ask them to, to type in hashtag FQ and then the account number that this relates to. And so then, yeah, through um, our integration with the document storage providers, we go in through there, we search through that whole workbook and we find a hashtag and then just, it's super simple. Like whatever number is to the left of that, we pull that out of the workbook and we tie that out against your ERP. And then now if you think back to that example I had given around deferred revenue, I would have done that process. I would have punched in hashtag FQ. I would have gone home for the night. When I came home in the morning, the fact that a refund was booked into NetSuite would have now been reflected inside of Flowcast. It would have thrown off my trial balance number. I would have gotten an alert for that. It would have removed my sign off. I'd go in, I'd be like, oh, okay, you booked this entry, add it to my reconciliation, hit save. It's gonna update Flowcast, tie out again, and you're good to go. So that that's like, you know, the tying out of that ending balance is the real problem. It's not connected. Yeah, that's amazing. And you, the, there's another thing you talked about earlier uh, when you're at Quarterstone, which is you were all sitting in the same room. And I think one of the fundamental changes probably since you were at Cornerstone and you, I don't know if Flowcast like this, but we're completely remote. Mm -hmm. And so being able to like actually use software tools and do sign offs and make this stuff. So it's like communicated to, you know, in a piece of software instead of relying on word of mouth in the office is like incredibly valuable to like the modern accountant. Yeah, it, it, re it really is. And one of the annoyances was just the status update meetings. Like, do we, do we really need to all sit in a room together? And say, yeah, like it, they're just unnecessary, but they are not unnecessary for a controller who doesn't have something like this. You As a controller, you have to know where you stand. And if you're not empowered with technology, the only thing you can do is bug your team. That's, that's your only option. And it is what yeah. it is. And you're, as a controller, you have the pressure from the CFO. When are we going to be closed? When are we going to be closed? How smooth is the audit going to go? When's my reporting done? When's my FP&A done? You have all this pressure and... Uh, you need to know, you just don't have good insight. And that's you know, one of the things that we help with. Yeah. Have you seen like a big, is that like one of the reasons people sign up for Flowcast now? Because they're running a remote, either remote teams at a big enterprise 
or remote accounting teams? A very common use case for us is not so much a remote like team in the United States, but we'll sign a company with say 30 accountants in the US, they're headquartered here, and then they have international uh, locations. So maybe they have like two accounts in, in London or something and different people throughout the world. So all of a sudden you're running into time uh, differences and them being remote. And like that was when we opened up our UK sub at Cornerstone, all of a sudden our hours got even worse like than they were previously. And yeah. it was just like, holy crap, this sucks. And it's everything's delayed a day. And now, now you just don't have that issue when you're collaborating with yeah. something like Flowcast. Through the, we have review yeah. notes that are, of course, tailored towards accountants as well. So by being able to, to use review notes throughout the application, that's how you can like keep working together, even if your time zones are different and you're not in the same spot. That's huge. Yeah. Renew, review notes. People don't know, like you, you kind of make decisions during it. Like people think accounting is really cut dry, but actually there's a lot of interpretation that happens or a lot of like citing why you did something. And so we do the same thing. We have workbooks that we have review notes, but that's, that's incredibly valuable because you don't have to, again, you don't have to have a status meeting or you don't have to have that one-off conversation. You can just read what the person was thinking. It, it makes logical sense. It's kind of like what a software a programmer like annotates their code. You know, it's like the same kind of. Logic. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think back to a story I had at Cornerstone where we had this uh, customer who renewed early. And so it cut off their subscription term. <laughs> and when that happened in the in the old revenue world where I'm sitting there allocating consideration, there are different recognition periods and. They come through with this and it was just like, holy crap, this is a nightmare of an adjustment. Literally, this one adjustment took me a week to figure out on my own. And the auditors came out nine months later and they're like, so what happened here? How did, how did this work? And I literally just could not remember. I was like, uh, I don't know. Like uh, the review notes got buried somewhere. They're not here. Uh, and I was just like, man, I wish I had review note functionality. The guy I was talking with about it, we could have just been chatting through Flowcast and it would all be documented in there. But it was it was like so complicated that I literally couldn't remember and was just like, all right, I, this seems pretty accurate to me. I'd like to see you guys do it better. <laughs> it was kind of my response to the auditors. What's the better logic? And they they ultimately agreed on it. But yeah, just like more documentation is never a bad thing when you're referring back to back in yeah. time to your own work. Well, you also touched on something that's pretty important: is the timestamp. You know, like yeah. To, to have that documented at a certain time and be able to, especially I've kind of found with auditors, when we like IRS auditors, especially when we have a client getting audited, showing that you did all the work back in the day when it was actually like when you're doing the work, instead of being the person who rushed, like you got the IRS notice and then a week before the meeting, you tried to put everything together. Yeah. They, they like know that. They notice all the timestamps. They notice the thoroughness. They notice the processes. And so if you've done all the work ahead of time, you actually really get the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, interesting. Um, it's kind of human nature. You know, they want to reward people who who did a good job ahead of time and knew that they were might come under the scrutiny of the IRS. So it softens up the audit a little bit? Yeah, it just makes it like they're, they're human beings like everybody else. If you look like you did all your homework the night before, you know. Yeah, that's a really, that's a super interesting point. Oh, man. Yeah. Now that you say that, I'm thinking back to like my clean audits versus my just terrible audits. And you're so right. I would head in with like a, yeah, they got this under control. And sign, 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 sign. All right, on to the next audit. And then I'm just beating up my production clients who don't know what they're doing. Yeah, very interesting. Okay. I love it. I love it. Well, hey, let's, let's break down because you guys have, it's kind of interesting. You have two, you have a product that can serve two markets, which is, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but like the large enterprises, you know, like 
Cornerstone had 50 accountants. You built it for that probably. Yep. But then you have accounting firms like us that have a lot of different clients, like smaller clients. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you think about the segmentation for Flowcast? We definitely focus on what we call the mid-market, which are those direct, those direct clients. And the way we did that was we... We didn't build the initial product like for Cornerstone. We couldn't support a business of that size at the time, um, just because like it was so it's so much programming to get everything they need immediately. So we started with the classic iterative model. We put out a super simple version of our product, and we focused on earlier stage companies. So earlier stage uh, software startup companies. It's the easiest one to sell into, but. We can't go too early because the pain doesn't exist at about two accountants. You got to wait till six until it exists. So we're kind of in this weird uh, middle ground where companies like Twilio are like, yeah, hey, we can take a risk on you. You're missing a ton of stuff and we're going public in a year. Like you got to get this sorted out really quickly. And uh, so those were the types that we were convincing. So they're startups, but have CFOs, have plans, like have, you know, serious investors behind them. Um, yeah. It's not your average, like, yeah, two two dudes in a garage writing code kind of thing. And I had never really envisioned that m- being a market for us because I just didn't think the pain point was there. But then as time progressed, we started getting inbound leads from from firms like Cruise and a couple others. And we were just like, huh, this is OK. This is fascinating. The pain point isn't in any individual client being all that complicated. It's that you have 200 clients and you have to manage all of them at the same time and you have you know, processes, you have teams collaborating around those. So I actually started to think about it more like, all right, it's basically like a company with a ton of entities. You're, oh, you know, interesting. Like, yeah, we have 225 subsidiaries. Yeah. So yeah. you're, you're doing 200 small closes for all your subsidiaries. And as we were thinking about it, I'm like, well, all right, from a product perspective, that's the direction we're going anyway, is to sell to bigger companies and they're going to have multiple entities and, it sounds like we're just going to sort of organically be filling the product gaps that we have for this market anyway. So whatever. Okay. Let's see if we can sell. Let's see if we can sell into it. So we put some resources on it. It's definitely not our focus, um, but we have, you know, like about 8% of our revenue comes from this, uh, wow, from this channel. Yeah. Um, so definitely something we've, uh, we've been signing up clients with and it's been an interesting thing that I hadn't expected in the beginning. And then it's just fascinating to me that, the, the functionality gaps with outsource firms overlap so heavily with bigger international companies. It was like really yeah. fascinating to me. So like whatever, it's no no resources that we're really carving out to uh, to invest in here. So let's give it a shot. Yeah. Well, also, like if you think about it, especially for us, like as the companies progress, like we, we, we're working with companies that have like 100, 200 employees. And they've got like, a, they start bringing their accounting function. They hire a VP of finance and then they might hire a controller and maybe a staff down. And so we're working and supporting them the whole time. But like, if we're already using Flowcast, that's a great seed, uh, uh, like a, a sales seed for you. Like that VP of finance and the controller are going to see how it works. Yep. And next thing you know, as soon as they bring it all in-house, they might be looking at Flowcast. So to me, it's like, a, it's almost like you use Twilio as one of your customers, but like it's a Twilio model of like getting people using the software used to it. And then when it's time for them to bring it in-house, they can sign up and, and pay a subscription as well. Totally. And then from the firm's perspective, like for someone like a cruise, I have to imagine it's a it's a phase in. It's like a transition or they're phasing in. You're kind of transitioning out. You probably provide services support for a oh, while yeah. after that. Like, I, yeah, I don't think you just drop from the team. Magic no, no, days, no. So. It's usually like six to nine months. Yeah, and we actually that's when they tell us they want to bring in house. But usually we, we work 
we work with the average company three or four years, so it's a pretty long. Yeah. We we come embedded in their company, you know, is is how it works. That's when it's working the best. If it's if it's if there's a lot of friction or something weirds happening, then then we won't. We'll transition quicker because they want to do it quicker. Yeah, and I, I have to in a scenario like that, I have to imagine you know there's collaboration with them, and so using Flowcast like as part of that onboarding and collaboration to me seems helpful. And then you just have the continuity of everything's documented, like the history of everything Cruise Consulting did yeah. was, is still with that company. So if you rapidly need to move into an audit, you know, if all of a sudden they're like, hey, we are going gangbusters, we want to go public, it's time to do a three-year retrospective audit, all of a sudden they're auditing Cruise's work and having that yeah. in the same yeah. instance as the new kind of teamwork is a really helpful thing. Um, yeah, I've always, sure. And then by the way, you know, you guys just kind of get to show off how buttoned up you are, it makes you look better as a firm as well to, to everything. So yeah, it's pretty much a a win-win-win, I would say. It's a good win-win. Well, this has been amazing. Real fast before I let you go, just talk about you. Like you rate your the accounting sector has kind of gotten hot for startup dollars, like for VC funding. Maybe just talk about your experience because when you started the company eight years ago, it wasn't like the hottest sector. You know, like how how have you? What's your opinion, or how have you seen the sector change in terms of startup and VC funding? Yeah, well, part of what sucks is like a lot of the work that I, I put in is part of what made the space a little hotter. So I was like, <laughs> it just sucked. But it, the reality is I need to give credit to a lot of other companies that came before us, in particular, our competitor, a company by the name of Blackline. They, I was actually not aware of them when I started the company, which to me was like, whoa, all right. I, I Googled a lot to try to find something that did this and I couldn't find them. But they, uh, they were... I think about 20 million of recurring revenue at the time, and they ended up taking on private equity money, growing really quickly. They sell they sell to the enterprise, and them going public and proving that there's a huge pain point here, and that the market truly is every company that has an accounting department, which is every company in the world. They're like, oh, okay, this is uh, yeah, the market started to kind of pick their head up and address it, and uh, that was when more money started flowing into it. So like the seed round would have been 20. 13 and then the a round would have been 2014 through 2015 and it was brutal for me like so many no's it took me it was so many hours yeah and and you know i think i think like a lot of entrepreneurs like to be make bombastic claims around this but i legitimately heard no from 100 people for the seed round and the a round is was probably about 40 or 50 which it sounds like half as much, but it's not because it's so much more work to pitch for a series yeah. A. And I'm on planes all the time. I'm going up to the Bay Area, like, you know, and it sucks. I'll tell you one story. I was on the verge of getting a term sheet. It was for 3 million bucks. It was for our series A round. And it was like, you know, we were kind of marching towards zero cash date. And I'm sitting in the Burbank airport, heading, getting ready to head up to the Bay Area. And the stock market is just like crashing. So it was this, oh, you know, God. yeah, it was that flash crash that occurred at the end of 20. 15 and the term sheet got pulled from me and oh. I was just like back at square one and we're running out of money so fast. And we, we finally, we got someone who was really interested. They got the round done quickly. We had to like not pay ourselves for a few weeks to be able to float the cash, to keep our employees happy and you know to pay our employees. The founders ended up not taking on salary, yeah. uh, but that was really difficult. Then, then Blackline goes public. All of a sudden, I'm getting calls from everyone because investors are doing research on the market. They're realizing it's a huge opportunity. A lot of them missed out on the Blackline investment deal, and they were bummed that they left so much money on the table. So they were looking for the next best thing in the space, and we are the next best thing in the space. And so we started getting more inbound interest. And ever since then, the next 
the following rounds of funding have been significantly easier. It's a it's a combination of the market is proven, our product is proven, and I think that I I've shown that we can execute well enough to where people are comfortable investing in the the founders yeah. and the entrepreneurs. So, yeah, it's like night and day from what it used to be. We like our Series C, which we closed a couple months ago, was going to be hyper competitive, but got taken off the street because someone ran ran out ahead of it and just made us a really good offer, and we we closed it. That's awesome. Um, so yeah, 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 that's a great story, and that's an inspirational story for founders who are like in the C or Series A right now with COVID. You know, like they're probably living the same life you lived with that flash crash and losing term sheets and things like that. So that's thanks for sharing that with because. I, I, thanks for being like real about it too. Cause there's a lot of people who kind of paint, they, they go backwards and they talk about how, you know, I, I was such a genius. Of course, the venture capitalists recognize what a genius I was. And I kind yeah. of like for real, I, I've seen hundreds of companies get funded. I've funded a bunch of companies myself. And it's like, it's never that easy. It's never apparent when, when the money's coming in. The early days. Yeah. So, and, and I mean, the other thing that I, I had to deal with is the stereotype of accounts. You know, if you're if you're <laughs> yeah. if you're a VC, your standard investment is either some big, tall, loud salesperson that you're giving money to, or an engineer who's just a genius engineer. And I walk in with neither of those skill sets, and yeah. I'm the accountant. And you know, I'm just like that. That's the entrepreneurial spirit isn't perceived inside of an accountant. And we're not risk yeah. takers. And I'm sitting there like, I quit my job. <laughs> like I'm I'm doing all the things that you're looking for, and. It's funny because as time went on, I would still continue to hear this concept of like accounts can't sell, can't do this stuff. And, you know, I got so done. I got so sick of fighting that argument. I just kind of sit there quietly and be like, like, sorry. And let me take a step back. One of the things I love hiring accountants as sales reps and we, yeah, I constantly get pushback on it. Like to this day, I'll sit in my room of investors and they'll be like, accounts can't sell. And I just sit there quietly and I look around the room and I'm like, I have sold all of you to the tune of $93 million of venture capital. And you're telling me accounts can't sell? Like what, what world are we living in right now? And by the way, I look over and some of my top reps are accountants. Like they just get it and stop applying the stereotype to people. Like, let's take a step back and think about the positives. When you're in accounting, you learn how an entire business runs and operates and what things should look like from an early stage up through a growth stage, grown up public company. Like I've seen all of that from behind the scenes, which is actually a lot more impactful than anyone ever gives it credit for. So like for me, I ran this entire company for the first three years on a spreadsheet, on an on a forecast schedule where every day I was every hour I was punching in like, OK, we're going to do this marketing event, this $2,000 is going out the door in October, 2015. Like no one else is tracking stuff to that level. Yeah. So we were just able to aggressively, you know, being the aggressive accountant, like burn cash down to the very lowest balance possible before raising my next amount of money. We had comfort. Yeah. We knew, we knew where you were. Yeah. And it was like a joke. I remember one of our, one of our early investors, he's still a great mentor of mine, still on the board, loved the guy. But we were about a year into selling. <clears throat> he was like, you guys really should be tracking metrics and, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it was just it was one of the most egregious forms of portfolio bias I've ever seen, because it was a, it was just like no one at this stage is tracking metrics. I'm going to tell these guys they need to track metrics. And I was just like, Rob, you got to be kidding me. Like, as yeah, as an accountant, literally one of the things I thought about is I'm so excited for the day I have enough data to run metrics that make sense. And I've been tracking all of this for three quarters. Like, I'm more than happy to show it to you. It just doesn't, we can't rely on it very much. But like, yeah, I got it all. 
cost to acquire a, you know, a customer, like what's our sales and marketing expense leverage, like all the, we even, we even make up metrics internally that I think are better than what's used on the market. Like we have one, I'll tell you, it's called the, uh, it sounds like an opportunity for Flowcast to be in the, uh, the metrics market too. Yeah. I've actually had a thought. I would love it if someone steals this from me and, and gets it. One of my big gripes about SaaS is that there's no guidance around metrics. So a lot of people interpret metrics and report them differently, and you have to weed through public financials to understand how they calculate these things. For example, if you go and you ask five CFOs how they calculate churn, you're, you're going to get five different answers, which yeah. boggles my mind. So we need like a, like a gap version of SaaS standards. We need, we need something. You're totally right, actually. We, we have a saying that venture capitalists, they all have like their certain flavor of you know, bookings, of churn, of contract value, it's all over the place. So you're right. We end up doing a lot of custom dashboards for, that yeah. stuff for like the board at the company we're working with. Yeah. I'll give you the kill. The, the worst one for me is, uh, and, and I get asked these I So when it becomes apparent to me is when we're doing fundraising and a VC will ask me a question like, oh, do you calculate it this way? And I remember the last round of funding that the question was, do you calculate uh, retention based on the cohort that's being retained in the quarter or based on your full ARR balance? And I'm like, people report on full ARR balance. That is like the most misleading thing I've ever heard. No, we don't do that. And like, who are you working with that they actually do that? And uh, it was you get questions like that and you're just like, wow, that's like not interpreting retention rate properly. Who yeah. cares about revenue that's not coming up for renewal in the quarter? We're talking about what's being yeah. renewed right now. Like that is so misleading to present it as a full ARR base. Like, hell yeah, I'd love to do that. My numbers would be way lower <laughs> than they are. That was never, that was never, those, those deals were never at risk. Yeah, you know, like. exactly. Yes. Yeah. So uh, anyway, it's uh, yeah, I would love if anyone's listening to this, if you're a super accountant nerd and you're into SaaS, please codify these metrics and uh, let's get everyone on the same page with this stuff. I love it. Mike, thanks so much for coming by. Maybe you can tell everyone where they can find Flowcast and how to reach out. Uh, yeah, so if you want to learn more about Flowcast, we do have a weird spelling to our name. It's uh, just flowcast.com. That's F-L-O-Q-A-S-T. The Q being the key there. Yeah, you can just learn more there. Or uh, you know, if you want to shoot me an email, if you're listening, I'm just Mike at flowcast.com. Also, feel free to do that. Uh, follow us on social media and all that all that good stuff. Big thanks, Mike. Thanks for coming right. by. Yeah, appreciate it. I really appreciate your time. So when your troubles are mounting, in tax or accounting, you go to Cruise, Founders and Friends. It's Cruise Consulting. Founders and Friends with your host, Scotty Olm.